This is News Talk 980 CKNW. Jill's away this weekend. Sterling Fox with you at 933 on a Sunday morning. Joined on the line from Victoria by Global BC Chief Political Reporter Keith Baldry to take a look at the busy week ahead for the incoming new government of our province. Keith, good morning. Hey, Sterling. How's it going? I'm well, thank you. Uh, do I have my, my date right? Is it July 18th for the swearing-in ceremony? Yeah, that's going to be happening over here in Victoria Government House at 2 p.m. John Horgan will uh, be sworn in as Premier, as will his Cabinet. So the guessing games are already underway of who's going to make the, the big jump to the big table uh, in the first NDP Cabinet in 16 years. Absolutely. yeah. So that's a week Tuesday. And you're absolutely right. And our mutual friend Mike Smith has got a big column in the province today about this with several pr- prominent people uh, identified as possible picks. But of course, as is always the case when selecting a cabinet by a political leader in Canada, there are more considerations than just, oh, I don't know, who might actually be best for the job. Keith. Yeah, uh, a talent doesn't necessarily get you into cabinet. I know. It's, uh, things, so things like geography, where you're from, uh, ethnicity, you know, are you, do you represent uh, an ethnic community? Mm-hmm. Gender is, uh, is uh, a, big require, a big consideration. In fact, in this government, I expect this to be a 50-50 split between men and women. Right. You start factoring all these things in, and you realize... See, someone, you gotta, someone's got to be able to tick more than one box uh, favorably to get into, uh, into a cabinet. And the other thing that's unusual about this one, Sterling, is that John Horgan cannot risk alienating or angering anybody. True. Because he needs everybody's vote all the time. And so he's, he's looking at a lot of newcomers, um, you know, all of them uh, potentially uh, qualified for cabinet, but... The numbers show that he's also uh, inheriting or bringing in with him 15 people who have been in, in languishing in the opposition benches since 2005. Wow. 12 years in opposition. And he's got to be careful about bruising too many egos who sit there I'm saying, people say, look, I've spent, I put 12 years in here. I get passed over for this person who's brand new. Mm-hmm. So he's got to be careful that he that he can't alienate some of the old timers. Nevertheless, he he also faces the challenge of showing that there's new blood that the NDP's attracted new blood um, and and fresh faces and not people associated with the past. So it's a difficult balancing act. Then the, the fact he's only got four MLAs outside of Metro Vancouver. Well, I was, I was just going to point that out to you, Keith. My gosh, you talked about geography being such a key factor in determining uh, places around the cabinet table. And this new government, this incoming new government, is overrepresented in, in, in the lower mainland. There are, as you say, four MLAs outside of Vancouver Island and Metro Vancouver. That's not a lot of representation. One would think almost automatically all four of them will get jobs. I think there's a good possibility of that. I think at least three of the four. I think uh, Doug Donaldson, Michelle Mungle would head the list. Doug Donaldson from up north, Stikine, Michelle Mungle from the Kootenays. Uh, Katrine Conroy's been there since 2005. Um, she logically would be a candidate as well. Jennifer Rice is uh, sort of the junior of those four. She's up from Prince Rupert. So I think if anybody doesn't make it out of those four, it's likely her. But, uh, again, yeah, I would say it's almost a lock that three of the four go into cabinet because the NDP sorely needs some representation from places other than Vancouver and Surrey. Well, and those places are going to want to be seen to be represented. It's not just enough to have an MLA, one of four, uh, in, in the House representing your outside-the-big-city interests. They need to see those people around the cabinet table. 
They do, but uh, it, it's increasingly apparent that this province is electorally divided between Metro Vancouver and the rest of BC, mm-hmm. and that was reflected. It, it started. We sort of saw this breach, this gap occur in 2013, uh, but it really became <coughs> excuse me entrenched, <coughs> entrenched and magnified in the May ninth <coughs> May ninth vote, where where again um, the, you know, the most of the province is liberal red, but you get down to Metro Vancouver. And most of the writings are NDP ones. Yes. And, and of course, uh, the very, very lackluster campaign the Liberals conducted in Metro, in and around Metro Vancouver, uh, really uh, a, a real blase effort that cost them a stack of seats, Keith. Yes, they really didn't uh, figure out the affordability issue that, that John Horgan figured out. I actually think the turning point of the campaign and one that continues to resonate, was the NDP's promise to get rid of the, the tolls on the Portman Bridge. That was a an issue. You know, you look at people who pay those tolls on a regular basis. That was basically promising everybody, every driver, a $1,200, $1,500 check. Right. And, you know, call it buying votes, whatever you want. It was an effective policy. Uh, and you look at the writings that swung from, from the Liberals to the NDP in Metro Vancouver, uh, at least a half a dozen of them were consisting of people who probably took the Portman Bridge on a daily basis. Yep. And that promise alone, I think, determined the outcome of the election, which, uh, which is interesting. But uh, the NDP was able to figure that out, and the Liberals were not. Right, and, and uh, a very costly mistake. Uh, the other thing that is, is interesting to note here, that it, it, it was a very high priority for Andrew Weaver and his two greenies uh, it, by way of doing the deal to support Horgan, that the, the, uh, uh, this whole Wild West environment of uh, cash donations from foreign people, from unions, from individuals, from corporate groups, all of that has to go away immediately. Well, Horgan's not sworn in yet, uh, and I would imagine they will move fairly quickly on the file. But, Keith, they're still, the NDP are still accepting donations from all of those sources they're about to ban. Well, and it's an open question about what about to ban actually means, because the House comes back in September. There is no indication yet from the NDP that a bill will, will pass the House to ban corporate and union donations and foreign donations. In fact, it just may sit there. It may be introduced and come ba- and wait till the spring for actual passage. This is uh, it's not been clarified yet by the NDP, but it is certainly they've opened the door to simply c- continue to discuss this legislation, sort of an exposure bill. But uh, when the House just leave it sitting there on the order paper for passage come the following spring, which would still give the party. Uh, a number of months, six months or more, to continue to fundraise in that fashion with from unions and corporations. So this issue has been, not been put to bed by any means. I know, and, and yet, and yet the the Greens would have us believe that just any second now it's all over. Well, the Greens, I think, are going to start discovering um, that they're not driving the bus here. That uh, it is the NDP that is the government, and not the Greens. Even though the NDP is propped up by the Greens. Uh, Andrew Weaver, again, you have to question what did he, exactly did he get out of this deal. Uh, he wants to shut down the Site C dam. That's not a promise the NDP is making. They're just simply referring to the Utilities Commission. Right. He wants to shut down Kinder Morgan. John Horgan doesn't even, or wants to shut down the Kinder Morgan pipeline expansion. John Horgan doesn't even want to talk about that. He mm-hmm. just says, oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at it and see what we can do. But not clear at all that they'll do anything to shut down the Kinder Morgan pipeline. Uh, you know, the Greens want Uber to come in. 
um, John Horgan just hired Jeff Mays as a chief of staff, the number one opponent of Uber when he was on Vancouver uh, City Council. That's right. The Greens want tolls on all the bridges. Well, we saw where that's going. That's off the table. And now the whole pledge to get rid of corporate union donations still very much up in the air when that's actually going to happen. Yeah, it is, and it's, it's interesting, too. And I think one of the reasons the NDP are keeping the, uh, the, the cash register wide open is because they have less than half the cash reserves the liberals do and who knows literally keith who in this province knows when the next election is going to be called yeah no the uh everybody has to be on election footing pretty well from from here on until the the foreseeable future i mean so an election can be triggered almost at any time which means these parties have to get ready to go the ndp spent an incredible amount of money very effectively on those relentless television ads that attack Christy Clark in a, in a negative way that we've never seen before in BC election history. Mm-hmm. But it was very effective. You know, I mean, it, it obviously drilled into people uh, the notion over and over again that she was associated with, with big money and out of touch with the common person. Can they repeat that ad campaign in the next election? I doubt it. I don't think they've got that kind of money. Uh, but that's one reason why I think they're going to hang on as long as possible to the current fundraising uh, mechanism. And, and to that very effective campaign, painting pay, pay, basically Christy Clark as, a, as the uh, uh, the recipient of all of these donations and therefore a pawn of all the donors, mm-hmm. was incredibly effective and made even more so, Keith, by the fact that when Christy Clark was asked about this matter during the election, time after time, and I'm sure you asked her more than once mm-hmm. about all of this, she would shrug her shoulders and go, oh, people don't care about that. People care about jobs and just slough it off as though, you know, next. And people yeah. do care about uh, bought and sold politicians. Well, particularly if, if you can, a politician can be yoked to that image. That's where I think really uh, hurt her. It was her being associated with big money. And that, uh, that was very effective for the, for the NDP in terms of their ad campaign. It was tying her. Remember those ads that were sort of animated ads of a picture of her and then sh- being sh- literally showered with dollar bills. Exactly, yeah. dollar bills. And that's, that was very effective and really brought the, 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 the point home, I think, to a number of electors. Having said that, Christy Clark, even though she was the subject of this, this type of unprecedented negative campaign, still got more votes and more seats than anybody else. So True. some of us are wondering, okay, is this as bad as it gets for us? After going through all this, we still emerge with the most seats, and do we just have to sort of, uh, you know, tinker around the edges to, uh, come the next campaign to get it home? Or so others are asking, do we need a new leader? You know, is this uh, is Christy Clark done? That's a debate that will continue for some time in the foreseeable future, but I don't think it's a long-term debate. That issue has to be settled one way or another in the short term, which means I think Clark's got an opportunity to lead the Liberals again if, if the campaign is sooner than later. All right, I need to take a quick break here. And I, I did an editorial on this matter last Sunday, Keith, in which I gave uh, the Liberal, the new government, this new, I don't dare say coalition, you can't say that, this new alliance government, I gave them 12 to 16 months, despite the fact that the lifespan typically of a minority parliament in the British system, uh, like ours, is 18 to 24 months. I gave them about half of that, 12 to 16. What do you give them? I would give them roughly the same. I think they want to, the Greens and the NDP want to bring in this referendum for electoral reform, which would come in uh, the fall of 2018. So I think that's the time, uh, the time frame we're looking at. Uh, and don't, don't forget that the NDP may see to its own, suit its own purposes to trigger an election earlier 
than what the Greens are looking for. I mean, the NDP is going to be polling, and if they see a good time to go on an issue that's good for them, they'll go. They'll pull the trigger and deliberately lose a vote in the House, or simply ask the Senate government to dissolve the House, which is less likely. But they could lose a vote in the House deliberately, as W.A.C. Bennett did in 1953, uh, knowing that they were expecting that they could win a majority government once an election is actually held. So I, I think you're, I think you're on this probably the right side that I'm on as well. I don't see it going 24 months, but a year for sure, yeah. and probably a little longer than that. All right, Keith, stand by if you would, please. I need to take a quick break, and then we'll talk about some of the prominent names that are well-known to British Columbia voters who are likely to be uh, appointed to Cabinet, and we'll find all of this out in the days ahead. And don't forget the swearing-in ceremony takes place uh, in Victoria on July 18th. Keith Baldry, Global BC Chief Political Reporter with us, and we're back with more after this. Chills away this weekend, back with you next Saturday. I'm Sterling Fox. It's 949. We're at 18 degrees under still some cloudy skies around Metro Vancouver. Sunshine and highs in the low to mid-20s. The weather deal for those of us in this corner of bc today keith baldry is on the line from victoria global bc's chief political reporter as we look ahead to the well the 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 mix uh, that is going to be uh, the next British Columbia cabinet. And I guess you'd have to look first and foremost, Keith, at two former leaders who are still very much a part of the caucus, and that would be Carol James and Adrian Dix to be pretty much shoe-ins for cabinet jobs. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think particularly with Carol James. Carol James is emerging as John Horgan's right-hand person. I mean, she's going going to be deputy premier, uh, I would suggest. Okay. Probably going to be finance minister. Uh, maybe education minister, but she's going to get a senior portfolio, and those are those are basically finance, education, or or health. And I think uh, she's a lock. As is Adrian Dix. As is Mike Farnworth, another you know former leadership uh, uh, candidate. Uh, he, he's the one who actually has cabinet experience. He was a, a health minister right, yep. uh, in uh, the NDP government in the 1990s. Uh, so I think some of the some of the the veterans are definitely going to make up the lion's share of uh, of. Probably what's going to be a 22, 23 person cabinet. It's 22 right now, including the premier. I expect it's going to be similar um, numbers when Horgan swears in his team. So look, look for people like Carol James, Adrian Dix, uh, Mike Farnworth uh, to uh, make the grade, Doug Donaldson from the Re- from the North, Katrine Conroy in the Kootenays, Michelle Mungo in, in the Kootenays. Um, and then you got to look at David Eby from the west side of Vancouver. Yep. The guy has been a, a, a singular force for the last couple of years. Yeah, so the, of those who are sort of newer, um, I think David Eby for sure, Selena Robinson, who's also jokingly called one of Hogan, Horgan's heroes in the legislature. She seems to be favored uh, by him. Melanie Mark uh, in uh, Vancouver, Mount Pleasant, relative newcomer, won a by-election a couple years ago where Jenny Kwan's old mm-hmm. was. Right. I think uh, they're going to be in there. And in terms of newcomers, I think uh, probably heading the list is Bowen Ma of uh, North Vancouver Lonsdale for a couple reasons. Uh, she's got an impressive background as a civil engineer, but she's also, that's a riding that tipped the election towards the NDP. They stole that seat from the B.C. Liberals. Had it, Liberals had it a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only did Ma win, she won by an impressive amount, and they want to keep that seat. They need to keep that seat in in their hands if they want to form a majority government uh, come the next election. So I, I'd say she leads the newcomers. Um, Robbie Collin from uh, Delta North, also a uh, former uh, employee of the caucus, actually. I think he would probably rank number two. 
Um, and maybe Jenny, Jenny Sims in, in Surrey, former MP, former president of the BC Teachers Federation. And then you got to look at someone like Ronald Ray Leonard, who won the Courtney uh, Comox seat, which, again, that was a seat not expected to go on the NDP column. But because it did, it, it, it killed any hope of a BC Liberal majority. And again, the, the NDP may need to hang on to that seat if uh, they want to win a majority government. So the, one of the best ways to retain a seat is to give the MLA some status, and that means putting them in cabinet. Yeah. So I'd say those three or four would rank highest on my newcomer list. But again, my earlier point, that Horgan's got to be careful that he doesn't alienate or really um, bruise the egos of a lot of the old-timers who've been there for 12 years, and are if they're about to be passed over for a job that gives them an extra $50,000, that can sting and hurt. And uh, there are going to be some bruised eagles and disappointed people because the NDP does need to inject new blood. But uh, Horgan's going to have to tread carefully uh, when he decides which of the 12-year veterans doesn't make the mark. Keith, uh, you and I have talked about this in the past, speaking of John Horgan, having to tread very carefully. There are two factions clearly identified within the NDP. There's the environmental-slash-academic wing, and then there's the union contingent. And those two, the academic slash environmentalists, in many cases, are quite actively opposed to projects the union component really wants to build. There are, there are, there, there are dynamics within the party and within its membership that Mr. Horgan is going to have to manage pretty carefully. Yes, and, and what's even making it more complicated is that he's propped up by the Green Party, which has its own views on a number of these, these types of issues. Right. So, uh, the Sightsee Dam issue is a classic one. There are many in the, in, within the NDP faction and community who want that dam to proceed. That's, you know, those, are, those are well-paying jobs up there. It's, a, it's the traditional type of mega-project that the industrial side of the NDP favors. However, there is a very strong anti-Sightsee Dam view within the NDP. Yeah. Yes. Headed by someone like Lana Popham, the MLA for Sanit South over here, uh, where John Horgan is trying to walk down the middle saying he's just going to hand it off the issue to the, to the Utilities Commission. A number of people think he's doing that with the, with the secret hope that they say he might as well keep going on this thing and thus avoid a huge problem, which would see him, if he shuts down the dam, giving layoff notices to 2,200 people on what could be the eve of, of, a, of a new election. Right. So that brings the question, okay, so Anna Popham is opposed to Site C, but for that reason, do you put her into cabinet? Because uh, if you're in cabinet, you cannot criticize the government. That's right, you're bound by solidarity, aren't you? You are, totally, 100%, no deviate, no departure from that at all. Right. So any Site C detractor can be put into cabinet, and if Site C goes ahead, well, that's just the way it goes, and you can't say anything about it. So that's another one of the little things Horgan's dealing with here, is that you, you do diffuse some controversy with certain members if you put them into cabinet, because then they basically muzzle themselves. Interesting. Keith, I have to leave it there, but my gosh, we've been following this, you and I, and, uh, at various spots on the dial here uh, on NW for the last few months, and boy, I'll tell you, nobody's falling asleep at the switch during this, are they? No, they're not. Uh, it's amazing how many people are engaged in BC politics right now. The political process, people are actually coming up to me we were on the legislature front lawn on the day of the throne, the day of the confidence vote, and talking to me about standing orders, yeah. the rule book of the legislature, and about the committee of the whole and this, how the speaker votes. Uh, a level of political science people just never ever bother with is suddenly part of the everyday conversation for many people. I appreciate your your contributing to it again today. Always a pleasure. Talk to you.
you again. There's Keith Baldry joining us from Victoria, Global BC's chief political reporter. That's it for me. Need to take a couple of seconds here to say, first and foremost, happy birthday to this show's producer, Ben Dooley, and many thanks to our driver, Tyson Pellegrini, at the controls. Stay tuned for Get Connected host Mike Agarbo and his new show, The App Show, coming up next on News Talk 980 CKNW. Vancouver's News, Vancouver's Talk. This is News Talk 980 CKNW.